I won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Um, good morning, listeners. Um, you're listening um, to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and in the studio we have Alita Chalaya, um, Jacob, and also we have our guest um, in quite early uh, over the phone for all the way from Spain. Um, we have Dick Nichols uh, on the line, who's an international correspondent for Green Left Weekly. Um, good morning, Dick. Hi, Jacob. All right. Um, before I guess we start our interview. Um, I kind of want to first do the acknowledgement of country. So I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation and we'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land and sovereignty has never been ceded. That's right. Morning, Nick. I hope things are not so tumultuous where you are staying. Well, they are tumultuous, yeah. <laughs> and you're sitting there. tumultuous, frankly. <laughs> Sounds like you're in an exciting place. So lots and lots of things are happening almost on a daily basis uh, with this Catalan uh, referendum that's happened and, and it's in, in dispute at the moment. Um, maybe we can start with uh, King Philippe the Fourth. What do you think? think? Well, what uh, what happened was, I mean, everybody was saying, uh, all the Spanish state was saying, that this referendum wouldn't take place. And they did everything they could to try and stop it, including you know, sabotaging uh, computer systems, uh, sabotaging internet systems, uh, arresting the senior officials in charge of it in the Catalan government. And basically, at a certain point, and this is after the 20th September, the Catalan government handed... The, uh, the referendum to to volunteers, to people. Uh, and they did what they could, but basically a lot of the logistics of the referendum had to be worked out by people. And in the end, what happened was that the mass movement, and I won't go into all the details, uh, the mass movement in support of the referendum made it happen. And this was a combination of a bit of luck, um, but most, mainly it was the fact that the the mass movement of support for the referendum, which got seventy thousand volunteers in thirty six hours uh, to uh, to sit in in uh, polling stations, which are mainly schools and some community health centres, uh, they actually occupied the spaces that were needed to do the to do the referendum and the polling booths. They set up the polling booths, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that even though there were massive police and civil guard attacks on the day of the referendum, which you, I'm sure you would have seen in Australia on television, this did not destroy the referendum. This, this affected about 15% of voters, either stopped them from voting or confiscated their ballots once they had voted. And so the, the referendum went ahead, and this was a felt here as a tremendous victory, and it was a tremendous victory. But in the Spanish state, in the Spanish establishment, it was felt as a mighty humiliation. And so the response of the Spanish state to this is to plan to remove uh, the autonomy, to lift the autonomy and the uh, rule of uh, the autonomous region of Catalonia and to do this under a section of the 
Spanish Constitution, and the indication that this was going to happen, the sort of you know preface to all of this, was this abominable appearance of King Philip the Sixth uh, on uh, television two nights ago. Boy effectively announced that Catalans were outlaws. Um, he didn't have a word of sympathy for the 900 people who'd been injured by the police and civil guard in the Hasloven uh, attacking the polling stations. And effectively what he was doing was announcing that Catalans are outlaws and all legal methods to overcome the Catalan rebellion uh, were justified. And that's where we are at the moment. Yeah, and, and, then... The response, and then... the response of the Catalan government last night was, uh, well... That's not very helpful. We're calling for inter, uh, intermediate uh, negotiations and we're calling for people to often to, off, uh, to volunteer to be intermediaries. Like the European Union doesn't want to touch it with a barge pole. That's right. But but now the government... Sorry, did the European Union postpone uh, a decision? Or, or no, that was <coughs> no, the, the European... Um... The European Union had, there was a debate in the European Parliament yesterday. That's right, that's right, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and what happened was that the, the line was adopted, which was the line of the majority uh, factions in the European Parliament, which is the Popular Party faction and the Social Democratic faction, uh, which is basically two things. Yes, we deplore the violence, but that's just, you know, uh, crossing yourself, um, but, and we call for negotiations. Now... The Rajoy government doesn't want to do any negotiations. Now, their, their instinct is just to crush the, the, uh, crush the rebellion, crush these impertinent Catalans. Uh, but it's got a problem, it's a lot of problems, because the basic problem is the level of resistance here, uh, the massive uh, strike, sort of civil strike that we had two days ago, two days, ago, two days after the, the referendum, which was at once a protest against the police... Uh, attacks, but also an affirmation uh, that we had carried out the referendum, and the referendum, the results of the referendum, are now have to be uh, implemented. So now, what is uh, it, you know, the king did this this thing of his, and now basically the Rajoy government has got to try and find a way to implement um, Section 155 or Article 155 of the Constitution, suspend a government in Catalonia, and put its own people in here and do direct rule from Madrid. But it's got to do that in the face of a mass movement, which is huge, mm. and the biggest demonstrations in in Catalonia since the end of the Franco dictatorship, and is very confident. Um, so this is not going to be an easy job for them. And also where, it's a very important thing, they're developing support for the Catalan cause in the rest of Spain, much more than in the past. So that their campaign against the Catalans as outlaws, rich people who just want to look after themselves, and all, and all sorts of other filth that I won't go into explaining now, I don't have time to explain now. That propaganda campaign, which is massive, um, is, is not working as well as it needs to work if they're going to carry this off. Yeah. I guess um, what, the one question I kind of um, have, you know, flowing from that is um, basically um, what's kind of like, I guess, the prospects um, for Catalonia, Romania, independent state? Because uh, as far as I understand, the referendum has gone through and they have declared independence, but the rest of the the forces surrounded them, the Spanish state, and 
the European Union as well have not considered that legitimate and cause rash repression. No, they haven't, beca- they haven't declared independence yet. Um, they might do it on Monday. They have, They're thinking about it. They might do this on Monday. There's yeah. a, what's the, the program is on Monday there's a meeting of the parliament. Hmm. Uh, the Constitutional Tribunal has already suspended the meeting of the parliament. That's right, it did. Uh, on appeal from the Socialist Party. But <laughs> that means nothing in real terms. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because uh, this, this session parliament will go ahead and there'll be a massive demonstration in support. Uh, of this demonstration outside the, outside of, in support of the session of the parliament outside the parliament then but there are technical options what's the what's the cleverest thing to do is the cleverest thing to do to have a unilateral declaration of independence straight away that's a big discussion uh would it be smarter not to do a universal declaration of independence but say we'll, we'll hold off doing the udi the universal declaration of independence <clears throat> for a month and we give the rahoi government that time to come to the negotiating table? Or is it impossible to do that because the mass movement here is so revved up and so expecting a, a universal declaration of independence that it's not, it's not you know, realistic, not practically possible to, uh, to, to, to suspend it? So this is all in the air as we speak. Um, the big question, of course, as soon as there is a universal declaration of independence, the Rahoi government will declare that it can, it's legitimised to do anything, including sending the army in. And mm. already, the most right-wing people behind the Rahoi government are muttering about sending the army, get rid of these people, get this under control, as if it was some, you know, rebellious Roman province from the time of Jesus Christ, you know, that's the attitude. <laughs> now, what I see is um, an attitude to confront um, from the very beginning by the Rahoy uh, government as opposed to um, actually um, allowing the referendum to go ahead and then deal with the result as we discussed in, in the previous interview. Um, now Podemos has offered to mediate. It's the only party that has offered to mediate because every other uh, group has laid, laid, you know, Lays the hands off this, this whole thing and being, uh, or probably they probably think it's too messy. But in terms of mediation, other than Podemos, as far as you know, um, you know, is there any other party that has offered uh, to look at this from well, a calm perspective? Yes, well, you've had not of parties. It's only Podemos and the various alliances of it, which it works that has offered to uh, to mediate, and that's been rejected anyway. By Rahul's rejected that straight away. Two hours later, that was rejected. There's a lot of offers for mediation coming from, uh, you know, particular civil society quarters, like the Association of uh, Lawyers for Barcelona has offered to do mediation. Um, <clears throat> the UN, the, the United Nations Human Rights Commission has offered to facilitate mediation. The Rahoy government doesn't want, media- doesn't want mediation, but it's got to go through some kind of uh, show of listening to the call for mediation. And what it, what it needs most of all is to be able to say, look, these people are outlaws, they've done A, B or C, Universal Declaration of Independence or whatever it is, and there's nothing to mediate here. There's something you can't discuss with these people, and we, we're getting rid of them. We're sending in the, uh, we're sending in the troops. Um, so this is all going to happen in a week, I would say. That's just how we're close to a sort of critical situation. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. 
And currently we are interviewing Dick Nichols from Barcelona where all the excitement is around the referendum of um, the Catalan um, area. Um, and this is a live interview. Okay, Dick, um, the other question I wanted to ask is, um, is the Rajoy government so dominated by terrible right-wingers to an extent where there is no one within the government that has suggested some sort of uh, peace deal? No. No, because what the Rajoy government... Is, the Rajoy government is just not uh, you know, a governmental apparatus sitting in the air. It's, it's, it's an expression of the needs of the Spanish establishment, but also of a still strong sentiment in large sections of the Spanish society. That is to say, the sentiment that you can't break up Spain, defend Spanish unity, Spain one indivisible and free, which is the old uh, slogan of the of, of Franco, that's still got a big hold uh, on people. And this is the, this is the basic reason um, why Rajoy couldn't, even if he had he wanted to, he couldn't have offered a David Cameron-like, uh, you know, negotiated uh, referendum as Cameron did with the Scots. Uh, that wasn't possible because what we're dealing with is the heritage, the leftovers of the Spanish Civil War mm. and the fact that the Civil War, that the right wing was not defeated during the transition. So the right wing, which has still got very Francoist attitudes and it's got Spanish centralist, Spanish patriotic attitudes which go right back to, you know, the old empire when they ran Latin America and all this stuff, uh, that, is, that is still there and that is still very strong. Not with young people. It's changing. But this is all happening before there's a majority, clear majority, in favour of a different kind of Spain, a more democratic Spain. Now, I also believe that there has already uh, some economic impact happening um, in Spain, in addition to the fact that two of the largest banks um, that have the legal centres in Catalan have um, plans to move out of Catalan. So the market was down and the banks are trying to move out. So what's the reaction uh, by the uh, independent movement to this? Well, I haven't seen a reaction yet. Um, it's just come through today that uh, there was, uh, a friend of mine told me that there was a three billion run, bank run on two major, the, the, the two major Catalan banks, which is the Tasha Bank and Bank of Sabadell. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, that was, you know, there's a lot of speculation about what was that was this small um, deposit holders, was this, was this big business, was deliberately provoked from uh, Brussels or from the uh, European Central Bank. I mean, there's all sorts of rumours flying around. You can imagine that. Mm. Uh, but also, that, uh, and that goes with a, a collapse in bank, not a collapse, but a sharp drop in uh, bank share prices. Yes. And not just Catalan bank share prices. But this is, of course, all pressure, whether it's, Actually, manufactured pressure by the you know the powers that be, or whether it is just a reaction by you know deposit holders think, geez, I better get out of here. This could all go off in this moment. You know, I, I can't comment on that. Yep. Okay. Um, the other interesting aspect is the farmers who have uh, come out in support of uh, independence. Um, from what you you had mentioned <coughs> in one of your communiques, about five thousand tractors have taken part in road closures and demonstrations. That's interesting, the well, farming it, sector coming out like that. Well, what, what is it, it, it's a national struggle. So, and this, what that means is that 
organising these big demonstrations like October the 3rd and was an organisation called the Round Table for Democracy, which gathers together everybody who supports, not necessarily independence, but a Catalan right to decide, that is a Catalan sovereignty, the Catalans have got the right to decide whether they want to be in Spain or in conditions they want to be in Spain. And that means it's extraordinarily broad. I mean, the whole farming community here, which is not... It's practically the whole farming community, except the really big agribusiness, uh, supports the right to decide. Really big agribusiness thinks, oh, what's this going to do to our markets in the rest of Spain, our markets in Latin America, etc., etc. I'll just give you an example that the... Um, the wine producers from the 12 wine areas, you know, the 12 official wine areas in, in, in Catalonia, all signed a declaration in favour of the Catalan right to decide, with the exception of the three big uh, multinational wine producers. So the sentiment in the countryside is very strongly, uh, not necessarily pro-independence, but pro-Catalonia being a unit and a people that can decide what it wants to do. That, and that is very strong. And, of course, then you have... That connects with the fact that the farming community here, when going back to the old days when it was really a peasant community, or a farming community, um, has always been very militant. Very, and, and it was one of the things... One of the movements that was um, smashed immediately by, by Franco when he came to power in 1939. Um, because what you had in this country was uh, a big movement against... Um, big landlords uh, and a movement for cooperatives. So the cooperative movement is very strong in the rural areas and that connects with a historical memory of struggle for land rights you know, and, and, and for land reform and, and the tendency to just get out there with your tractors when, when you want to fight around something. So, and that's just flowed through into the way this community has, has acted in this struggle. Mm. And lastly, but not least, is the international support. I noticed that uh, there was some solidarity expressed from Quebec, but nothing from the Scottish area. Yeah, no. Just after I put out my, I put out the daily updates, which you get, Molly. And just after I put that, the latest, the latest one out, there was a statement from the uh, from the Scottish Parliament. So that'll be in tomorrow's update. So mm. okay. the trouble is, of course, you've got these formal expressions of support. Yep. But we're going to need more than that. We're going to need actual, you know, pressure on governments to put pressure on the Spanish government. Mm, I see. Um, yeah, Jacob wants to ask you something. Hi. This is a bit of a um, uh, a political question. Um, basically, it's uh, and I'm even sure this is not probably not an overwhelming sentiment, but I'm interested in hearing a response to this. Um, but what would your response to be um, to the kind of left wing arguments against Catalonia independence, which has mainly been coming, you know, from the more Stalinist type of left? Um, kind of like, you know, arguing again um, that, you know, it's dividing Catalonia and also there's no, there's no progressive movement behind Catalonia independence anyway. It will just end up into an, uh, as another right-wing capitalist state. Um, what is your kind of response to that? Because um, these arguments are fringe, but I'm kind of like interested in hearing your kind of analysis on that question. Well, well my argument, my response to that is just look at the facts. That's right. Frankly, look at what's happening. Um as you can imagine, if you have a movement for national liberation and independence, it's got to get a social majority. 
if you're going to get a social majority, who's going to form a social majority? You know, the one percent, or a rather large slab of the ninety-nine percent. That's right. So, what the tendency here has been ever since the movement started in really got going in two thousand and twelve, um, it has gone progressively more and more to the left. So that a lot of people can have got confused by this. A lot of quite a few people on the left have got confused by this because they're used to saying. Well, this is just the old convergence and union, which is the right wing ruling party heavy, as corrupt as all as you can imagine. Um, that party had it was because this movement rose. This party had a choice: it was either going to ignore it, continue with its old politics, and its old politics, or basically do a deal with Madrid, like you know, gangsters in Chicago. You get the east side, we get the west side. You're corrupt in Madrid, we're corrupt in Barcelona. Yeah. Um, they either had, could continue with that and run the risk of being just swept aside by the movement, or they had to put themselves at the head of the movement. But as soon as they put themselves at the head of the movement, they created massive contradictions for themselves, because this was a movement which is not just about uh, the national question. It's about what sort of society do we want? We want a Catalonia that's different from this pile of shit that we've been living in. Um, we want a future for our children that's different, that, that means something. Um, and... Effectively, what happened, you had a pro-independence government elected, and this pro-independence government has elected has introduced some of the most progressive legislation on on many issues. Gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual rights is a good example. Uh, global warming is another example. Guaranteed minimum income. And 33 of these uh, measures that they've introduced, 32 or 33, um, have been blocked by the Spanish Constitutional Court. So that's a sort of indicator that the national question, fighting for national rights in the present context in Spain, uh, is not a right-wing movement. And what has happened, in effect, is that the people you sort of pointed to, the people who tended to have this argument, was, which was Catalan bourgeoisie or bourgeoisie in Madrid, what's the difference, have actually had to face facts. If as this fight goes on, well, which side are you on? Are you on the side of the democratic right of the Catalans to determine their future? Are you on the side of supporting this referendum result? Or are you going to basically stand by and watch while um, the Spanish state implements Section 115 and destroys Catalan self-government? And basically what has happened is that people who tended to have that position have changed in practice. Uh, the United Left has swung on board. Um, because if you don't, you're just going to be exposed totally um, as you know, as being on the wrong side, to put it bluntly. Yep. And also the fact that Spain, more Spaniards um, are fully aware of the Stalinist um, governments. And this, this argument actually assumes that, um, you know, they will automatically become capitalist. Uh, it doesn't respect the right of the people to decide as to what they want to do and how they want to organise themselves. But anyway, well, I would say one thing more, which is it would be, you know, the, the Catalan government is not a socialist government. Yeah. Um, but but it's not, you know, it's capitalism and capitalism. You know, mm, mm. you can have a, a government which is quite capitalist, which is capitalist, which is, you know, not expropriating you know, the major means production or the commanding heights of the economy. But on social issues, it's very very progressive. Mm. Um, and that's and that is inevitable in Catalonia because it's probably the most socially progressive part of Europe. 
um, when I say that, the ordinary attitudes, the majority attitudes of people here are, 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 are socially progressive. And even a capitalist government has to reflect that. And it's sitting uh, right. This is this is complexity. You know? This is real life. Yeah. yeah. And they're also sitting right in, in in the mouth of the tiger, so to speak, in the middle of a right wing EU yeah. as well. So we can't forget that. Anyway, thank you so much, uh, Dick. Sorry to to have interrupted your uh, dinner. And well, thanks. Bye. The Indigenous Social Justice Association has been campaigning for over 10 years to end Indigenous deaths in custody and provide support to affected communities. Come join us as we let our hair down at a trivia night to raise funds to support our ongoing work. Bring yourself or come with a group and take home the trophy. Saturday the 21st of October at the Victoria Hotel in Brunswick. Tickets are $20 waged or $10 concession. For more information and to buy tickets, head to isjamelbourne.com. That's isjamelbourne.com. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne proudly supports 3CR. Are you the Come to the Union Activism and History Conference featuring a first-hand account of BLF Green Bands, farm worker organising with the National Union of Workers, rebel women, a secret history of Trades Hall, campaigning for a union yes, and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag Newspaper. Saturday, October the 14th at Trades Hall, Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A 3CR supporter. CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. All right. Um, good morning, listeners. Um, we're on, on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we just ha- um, had an interview with um, Dick Nichols, um, who was speaking us, to us live from Spain on the situation in Catalonia. Um, now, I guess the next kind of thing we want to discuss is um, in the latest Green Left Weekly, um, we have a big feature, well, a lot of feature articles on the Stop Adani campaign. Uh, I think some listeners probably might have watched um, Four Corners yes. on um, Monday. Um, and in relation, this is an article um, written by Margaret Gleeson uh, on on Adani about how GetUp releases new files dishing the dirt on Adani. 
Um, but just quick before we move on to this, um, discuss this, I just want to mention that tomorrow is a kind of a big national day of action um, for Stop Adani uh, campaign. Um, so there's going to be actions all around um, all around Australia. Australia. Yep. Um, so there'll be a Stop Adani Human Sign event tomorrow at the Prince's Park in Lane 4, or I think it's Lawn 4, um, in at 12 o'clock tomorrow where um, activists are and, uh, and protesters yeah, get together to make it. a Stop Adani Human Sign. Um, but I guess to give a... Now, discussing this article that Margaret Gleeson wrote, um, it talks about how GetUp has just published an updated file re- uh, version of the Adani files, which should re- um, which are released in on February. Um, the Adani files, you know, what it reveals here is it reveals the fraudulent kind of activity in the mining giant, um, which is, you know, currently under investigation, um, where it is accused of a 298 million scam that cheated shareholders, tax authorities and Indian energy consumers. Um, much of the report is or is from material that was drawn by uh, a report that The Guardian published last month, which showed how Adani allegedly siphoned hundreds of millions of dollars of buyout money into offshore tax havens. Details of the alleged um, RP, $15 billion fraud are contained in Indian's Indian Customs Intelligence Notice obtained by The Guardian, excerpts of which were published on August 16th. Um, and now within this, it, it says here that le- these legal documents detail how Dani set up a front company in Dubai as a vehicle for purchasing equipment before selling it back to themselves at massively inflated prices. They then used a complex money trail to hide the profits in a tax haven. And I think it's, it's interesting, there's even more kind of like on what kind of all these kind of illegal kind of things that um, Adani, its company, has been involved in. Um, but, you know, just a bit of an anecdote, I was talking to my housemate um, after I had arrived home after he had finished watching the Four Corners um, Stop Adani report, um, and he was telling me that, you know, it's if someone was to make a movie about the kind of dealings of Adani, people would think it's almost too evil, like it's, it would be too unrealistic, but... It is actually real. Um, this is what, um, and of course, they're trying to build a massive coal mine um, that is, you know, going to kill, potentially kill the Great Barrier Reef, which has already suffered a lot from pollution and climate change. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be very important um, for as many listeners as possible to mobilise on the Stop Adani Day of Action tomorrow. And, that and can- I just want to give another. Uh, plug for that. That is actually uh, at the Royal Parade Carlton North. It's 200 to 590 Royal Parade Mm. um, Carlton North and it is actually to form a human um, stop Adani uh, sign, a human sign. So we all get uh, organized into those alphabets. So it'll Mm. be be great fun for kids to go bring the balloons or whatever and bring lots of um, signs, whatever you want to write against the, the, the destruction of the barrier reef and the destruction of, of land um, in um, in the surrounding areas of the barrier reef. Yeah, it's interesting because that I watched the Four, Four Corners report and it's a damning report and uh, I haven't heard any reaction to it from the government or Palashank or any of the, of the uh, groups because the farmers are totally against it and I don't see 
Barnaby Joyce saying anything about it. He's the supporter of the Adani mines, the, the federal and the state government are supporting them, as we know. But the fact that the farmers are against it, surely the National Party would have something to say. So far, we haven't heard anything. So politically, this is being brushed under the carpet. Under this, this slogan, this heap, you have these certain slogans they, they, they keep repeating. Uh, it, it means jobs. Yeah, so you you become, um, you know, uh, uh, you, you, anything is a job. Anything that declares a job. You can work for four hours is a job. Um, you you work with the worst health and safety conditions is a job. As long as they can call it a job, it's okay. Any funding mm. to capitalists is okay. It's, it's such a, such a, not just evil, it is blatant deception of the people with the slogans. And the politician seems to have this, this, this blanket um, statement that seem to think, oh yeah, if we put the slogan out, people will believe us. And this is what gives fuel to right-wing movements where they, they say, well, we are being exploited at the expense of foreigners. And they use that line, you know, the extreme right. And it's, it's, that dynamic is, is, is not being recognized at all, and they don't want to recognize it because they're sitting cushy. But there's also another uh, thing that um, they, they didn't mention in the four corners that we have got in Green Left Weekly, which this is an article actually, this uh, so there's another article on the same topic, actually, written by um, Professor Will Steffen, who Emirates prof- um, Emeritus Professor, uh, Fenner School of Environment and Society at the ANU, and Hilary Brambink is head of the School of Public Health and Social Work, Queenstown University of Technology. They both have written this article uh, titled Climate Council. Climate, health, and economics are against the Carmichael mine. And one of the things they they um, ascertain is that the Carmichael mine would likely be um, exporting coal combustion um, that already takes a heavy toll. An estimated eighty thousand to one hundred and fifteen thousand deaths, as well as twenty million cases of asthma. The health repercussions have not been discussed in detail. They mentioned it, but not in de- as much detail as, as this article does. And we have, um, you know, a, a temporary boost in a few jobs, not 10,000 jobs, as uh, the Premier of Queensland keeps reiterating. Um, and the, the dishonesty that surrounds this whole thing is staggering. Um, when I when I saw the report, I thought, you know what? When I saw four corners, I thought, you know what? We need a, a huge mobilization around the country, just about a million people land up near the barrier reef and confront the Queensland government on this issue. That, that's what's going through my mind. This is, this is, you know, a destruction of the environment of un, unprecedented level. You, you, you destroy the barrier reef, which was declared one of the seven wonders of the world. You might as well pack up and go home. Just give up. You know, it, it, it's very demoralizing for people who, who appreciate this thing. But anyway, I'm, I'm just so angry when I see this. Hmm. Yeah, anyway. I think, um, um, I guess, yeah, um, concluding, I guess, the discussion on Adani um, before we move on to another article. And I have something, uh, article I want to discuss from the international column, um, unless Lali has something she wants to share. Just really quickly. Yep. But I think it's um, important for us to remember that this is 50 years since Che Guevara was assassinated on the mm. 9th of um October is the 50th anniversary when the CIA ordered the assassination of Che Guevara. He's my favorite hero, if, mm. if I ever to have one. I guess he's a hero of many young people of my generation. I don't know about the, the current Gen Y. It'd be interesting to know what mm. who they think is their hero. But, you know, it's, it's important because it's 
in light of the recent upsurges um, of what's the, uh, the reactions to Cuba, like Trump, he wants to destroy Venezuela and Cuba, which are products of that era where, where Cuba gained in the, um, uh, you know, independence and became socialist and got rid of the Batista government and so on. And you know, it's important to remember that, that there are few things that uh, the revolution has um, certainly and firmly established. First, um, there was a... Um, there is a school of um, professional Cuba bashers and some self-proclaimed leftists who, in effect, seek to overthrow the Cuban Revolution. Some only see the failures of the Cuban Revolution. And failures, it can be attributed to the fact that they're surrounded by the biggest capitalist bastion in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what do you expect? This is a tiny island, what, 90 miles south of um, the U.S. Um, and the Committees of Defense of Revolution that were established by the the Cuban government uh, were used apparently were used for spying and controlling people. This is the accusations, but in in reality, these CDRs were the would continue to become become the key institutions of evolving and by no means perfect participatory socialist democracy in Cuba. And this it's, it's a model that has been followed throughout the Latin American region. And as we know, Venezuela is trying to do it and many other nations, they are looking at it. Um, aggression that 58 years later continues in the form of economic blockade and the ranting of uh, Donald Trump about wanting to destroy not only North Korea, he put Venezuela and Cuba in the same same category. Um, and of course, they still c- control Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay um, and it, it's ex- um, military threats and so on and so on. So we know all about that. Second, she understood the centrality of politics impelled by ethics, where subjective factors prevail, leading to the rapid uh, conversation, conversion of Cuban society into a giant school of reclaiming Cuban culture and ethic values. And and those are really important. The blacks in Cuba have a much freer society to live in than the U.S., for example. It's, it's, it's a classic. And women, too. Um, neither are by any means complete, but the struggle is much more progressive mm. than even the USA. And um, the thirdly, um, rejecting the use of capitalist methods to fight capitalism. Um, Shea and Fidel Castro used the methods of dialectic materialism and that's Marxist Leninist principles. And fourth, um, as known at the time and revealed in uh, the collections of Shea's writings after his assassination, Shea repeatedly warned about the dangers of not seeing the deficiencies of existing socialism and of mechanically copying Soviet manuals and methods. So he was very aware of Stalinism. Um, they, they, weren't, they weren't stupid people, the, the ones who made the revolution. And the fact that young people were so much involved in the in transformation of Cuban society. And lastly, Shea, like Fidel, was profoundly committed to the cause of peace and unfortunately had to take up arms to move the world closer to the, the ephemeral goal. But if you want to read this article in more detail, it is a, it's in the latest um, Green Left Weekly. It's written by James Crockford, who is um, a writer with the MR online uh, magazine. So, Viva la France, Viva la, I was going to say Viva la France, Viva la Cuba, um, and, and Che Guevara, long live Che Guevara, you know. Hmm. I get some factor in history. Okay, this might be some time to play a quick um, station ID and then we'll go move on to uh, another article from Green Left Weekly. 
You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. All right, um, you're listening to Green Left um, Weekly Radio on 855 AM, uh, or you might be streaming it live on freecr.org.au. Um, I guess that's what, um, this is an article I kind of wanted to bring up, um, some news from the United States. Um, basically, this is an article written by Barry Shepard on NFL players' protest um, racism. Oh, yes. Um, so this is... Um, in the context of, like, basically one year ago, Colin Kaepernick, if that's how you pronounce his name, um, the then quarterback for the San Francisco 49 uh, Niners National Football League uh, team, refused to stand up um, for the national anthem, you know, famously kneeling instead. Um, you know, at the time he said, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of colour. To me, this is bigger than football and it pu- and would be selfish on my part to look the other way. And, of course, then he, um, he then further said, there are bodies in the street and cops getting paid leave and getting away with murder. Um, over the weekend um, of September 23rd to the 24th, um, oh, uh, on September 23rd to 24th, tens of millions of football fans watched on TV as 200 mostly black powers kneeled or raised their fists while the national anthem um, was sung. The rest of their team stood in solidarity with their right to protest in arm in arm. Um, in some cases, um, teams um, would stay in entire locker rooms while um, the anthem played. Um, now, of course... Um, what happened from there, uh, as Barry Shepard here writes, was kind of like the massive kind of backlash um, from from politicians such as Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> some of the team's billionaire owners, um, most of whom support Donald Trump and donate millions of them, have actually stood by the teams, although they don't agree with the stance they've taken. Um, they did so for free re- um and they certainly don't agree with their protein plan, as being evidenced by the fusel of any of them to ta- um, hire the talented Kaepernick, who has been blacklisted um, for his protests. Um, they did so for, you know, three reasons. One, they didn't want to be seen as a Bane Trump. Two, they didn't want their players to be to hate them more than employees. Um, empo- and generally, and and three, if they start firing black um, um, players, who, ma- who would make up the bulk of their, uh, of the NFL, um, their teams would be decimated. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, basically, you know, response, you know, there's been actually Barry Shepard here then talks about kind of like the different kind of clashes that Donald Trump um, in his presidency and kind of like the past several weeks has had with sports players. Um, there was one uh, instance um, when the Golden States um, won uh, the NBA finals, as far as I understand, from last year and, you know, Every kind of NBA final winner gets uh, a formal invitation to the White House, <laughs> um, and their lead uh, and one of their lead players, um, Stephen Curry, basically f- said he would not go because he doesn't support Donald Trump and he doesn't stand by anything he says. 
Um, and I think, and then, of course, in response, Donald Trump disinvited the whole team. Um, and But then other basketball players, you know, came out kind of against Trump in that um, particular instance. Um, but I guess one of the... Um, one of the the context for kind of like some of these protests that have been coming from sports players has been, you know, a lot of Donald Trump's comments around um, the recent tragic Charlottesville events. Yes. Um, in fact, he it says here that, you know, Trump responded by stating that the anti-racist protesters were on par with the fascist-minded writers who killed one anti-racist woman. He said there were good people among the Nazis, Klansmen, and other white nationalists um, present. Um, and I guess the, the kind of other context for these protests um, from you know from sports players also includes the ongoing protests against a killer cop going free after a September 15th ruling, not guilty ruling in St. Louis, a suburb of which is Ferguson, which was the scene of the first Black Lives Matter um, mass protests. Yes, Black Lives. That brings to mind... Um Dylan Foyer's um, arrest in the Northern Territory mm. uh, recently, um, and it was three days before his uh, parole period um, was due to start. So that is another um, unforgivable crime by the um, uh, racist forces around the world, not just um, you know in, in the U.S. here too. Um, I, recently, there was a big discussion about sport and politics, and yet every politician uh, in Australia from John Howard down have used um, sports as a means of spreading their message and um, in South Africa it was the biggest campaign ever sports was a key factor in defeating apartheid so sports is within the political realm of mm. the world you can't you can't separate it from the remainder of the world which is really totally artificial well, i think um on my personal kind of analysis i want to kind of add is i think there's actually always a, a big attempt to depoliticize sport from mm. the establishment and i think there's a, it's actually quite understand why the fact is sports has a mass audience um and you know having any kind of political it's actually a good way of actually mobilizing people of course. Um, because you know you have tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands millions of fans um, and it's actually quite significant um, last Sunday at the NRL grand yes. final um, <laughs> when Macklemore performed the song yes. Same Love now I'm not a big fan of Macklemore as a musician but I think that was quite a, a good water, watershed moment for the Yes campaign the fact that you had hundreds of thousands of people young people foot football fans and now people make all these assumptions about footy fans being you know homophobic prejudiced or all that kind of you know stereotypes but no here you see them all celebrating and support of a singer singing about you know same sex and this was five years ago or something you know it's crazy that this protest they just make it you know, it's, it's a, there's a saying that you, you, you cut your nose to spite your face. Um, that's what they're doing. Instead of just leaving it alone, let them enjoy themselves. Let them deal with the issues. They provoke it. And it, it's in this sentiment that Cory Bernardi saw, uh, supposed to have rung a million people mm. about the no campaign. So you can see politicians um, gearing up so vehemently because they've got the money. Public don't have the money. Mm. But that one man, because he's in parliament... And I'm sure all his phone calls are paid for by the taxpayers' money. Mm. 
um, you know, he would claim it as one of his expenses. And yet the ordinary people and the, and the Yes campaign didn't have that sort of money mm. to do what they were doing. Yeah. Just to give a bit of an update on the Yes campaign, um, the re- results are looking quite good um, at this point. Um, just off the top of my memory, although my memory might be a bit in- inaccurate, um, I, as far as I understand, at least 78% of the ballot forms have been sent back. Um, and at least 73% have voted yes. But they wouldn't have opened the envelopes yet, would they? Um, Do we know? I, I, oh, I, no, this I don't is, know. Yeah, this is based on forms that have been sent back. Are they actually opening the forms as they come in? Yes, yeah. Oh, it's uh, not yeah. like the elections where they keep it till the, uh, yeah. the final day. No, no. That, so the, the, is that right? Oh. Yeah, the ABS are calculating. Uh, so that's um, that's the statistics at this point. So it's looking very positive for the Yes campaign. Yeah, and, well uh, should. and it's kind of, um, I guess it's funny, you know, around Tony Abbott's cabot <sighs> comments. Um, Vile uh, man. And Cora Bernardi. It's kind of, it's good that, you know, you're, you're seeing that, you know, politicians are in, I've been out of touch with the with the general populace. It's more than that. It's it's their dead set right wing rigid way of thinking. We have a extremely right wing, mm. you know, presence there. But the the other aspect of this racism is there there has been another death in custody. I just wanted to say that before I go and make the phone call you wanted me to make, um, Jacob. It's um, a twenty. Two-year-old Aboriginal man who recently died in custody. Um, you know, uh, it's it's just so tragic. When is this going to stop? Um, this young man was found hanging in his cell in the Tamworth Correctional Centre on the 20th of September, and he was um, taken to hospital. And he was said to have died two days later. The family disputes this, um, saying that there were reports from other inmates that the young man had been bashed by prison guards. He'd been taken to the hospital the day before, um, then taken back to his cell. So the family questions, rightly so, the circumstances surrounding his death. The young man's father, Colin Chatfield, feels that it was unlikely for his son to have taken his own life. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this is another very sad um, event for the Aboriginal people of Australia. Not, not only have they lost their land, now they're losing their young people one by one in this um, horrible um, series of um, young Aboriginal men dying in custody. He spent um, two years in Tamworth prison on remand in connection with some home invasion and was due to appear in court on the 21st of September. A verdict was due on uh, the 3rd of October and he he apparently had a good chance of acquittal. I'm not scared, Colin said, the father. The system is corrupt. He had no reason to self-harm. We know he was murdered. We know he was brutally bashed to death and then hanged. The mother... Uh, Nayoka told Sydney Rally at the uh, spoke at the Sydney Rally um, a couple of days ago. Uh, said that just weeks from being released from his correctional services and returning to life with his partner and three-year-old son in Armadale, he had everything to live for, and she, he had no reason to take his life. Um, so, of course, um, the New South Wales Department, uh, the Correctional Service, said that the young man is the 15th person to die in custody in New South Wales, something other than uh, natural causes since the 1st of July last year. So this is how racism ends up, where people die and uh, children are deprived of their parents. So it's uh, racism is a root cause of all these things. At the, on that note, I will go and do what I'm supposed to do. And yep. you want to follow up more news?
Okay, so um, just a quick. Um, I just wanted to give a quick um, update. Uh, many, um, some listeners might be aware that um, Dylan Roller and his mother were charged um, for protesting um, in the Alice Springs, um, and some a group of um, two activists had started uh, a shaft. Um, sort of fun, um, crowdfunding um, thing um, to to help um, to help pay for for their fines, um, and I'll just give a fortunate announcement. Um, there was a, um, a good announcement. Posit- um, what happened? Um, some good news. Um, basically, this was started yesterday, and they've already received over three thousand and five hundred dollars in donations, um, which is um, enough um, to. Pay um pay off the fines, which is very good news. Um, I'll just before we move on to, I'll share another article, but I'll just play a quick announcement. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil, and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Patman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali, and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. Alright, um, I just have, this is a quick kind of short article um, by Mia Sanders um, about, you know, no jobs, no houses, what's wrong with millennials. Um, this is in kind of response that, you know, uh, of a survey of Australian youth um, revealed that young people, uh, you know, are feeling increasingly um, bleak about their future. Less than one in 10 believe that they would will be financially better off than their parents compared with averages of 36% in the developed world and 71% in the developing world. And then from here, um, Mia, go- Mia goes on about, you know, the different kind of, you know, things that Millennials are apparently whining about <laughs> um, talking about unemployment. Um, unemployment for young people is at its the highest it has been in forty years. A third of Australian youth have no jobs or are underemployed. Double the rate for the broader population. Work is increasingly insecure. Um, the job seeker um, market is flooded, and those jobs that are available are increasingly casualised. The so-called underutilisation rate, which combines Unemployment and underemployment levels is now higher than it was during the 1990s recession. Meanwhile, increasing automation is eradicating jobs and putting downward pressure on wages at a time when wage growth is already at a historic low. 37% of uh, people think technology poses a threat to their job prospects. Students are emerging from tertiary education with unrepayable student debt and with information skills that are fast becoming redundant in the workforce. Um, technological advancement should relieve um, workers without a loss of pay, um, not send them into financial insecurity. Or, and then, um, then um, Mia then talks about you know the housing crisis with Australia becoming a world leader in housing unaffordably. Sydney is second only to Hong Kong in having the most unaffordable housing in the world. You know, a tin. You know, using the example of a tin shed in uh, in the inner city Glebe, Glebe um, laneway went for one point six nine million last year, demonstrating that. The Australian dream of home ownership will remain just that, a dream. And, a, and, and of course, you know, um, 
it's no wonder that you know eighty percent of young people, according to industry a supernotion um, survey, believe that home ownership is out of reach when you have you know this state of whether where you know that um, of the housing market is at. Um, but of course, um, you know, faced with the the facts, Mia then writes here. Even Uncle John might concede that you know millennials have been dealt a hard hand. But what does that mean? But does that mean millennials have sleepwalked into this mess, or are we awake to it? Or you know, a survey of Australia's um, youngest voters at the previous federal election showed that young people are most concerned with social issues, but also rank taxation and housing affordable among their concerns. Um, in their past, in the past two years, the the buzz around the politics of democratic socialists. Bernie Sanders in the US and Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, as well as the resurgence of the Black and Woman Liberation Union in in optimized by the SOS Black Movement, Australian Movement and Black Lives Matter in the US and Global Women's Act, had tapped into a mass frustration with the status quo. Alright, I think I might have a um that might be the time I have. I'll go play a quick announcement and we'll go in for the activist um calendar. We will not negotiate with minor state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. For Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded. I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it. Okay, um, good morning. Um, so now it's time for the activist calendar. Um, this Friday, um, today, we're gonna, there's going to be a music geek rocking for West Papua at 7.30pm at the Central Club Hotel um, at 293 Swan Street in Richmond. Um, there will also be an action um, called Paint the Town Rainbow. Um, from midnight, we are going to be going out and covering the streets of Rainbow Melbourne with everything rainbow that we can find so that when people wake up, they will realise that we will not go unheard. And they'll be, at the, they'll be meeting up at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in 12am. Um, Saturday, um, the 7th um, of October to the 8th of um, October, um, over the weekend, there'll be an Indigenous and Grassroots Movement Solidarity Gathering, you know, bringing together speakers from Latin America, Australia, West Papua and New Zealand and other communities and people to share their struggles, setbacks and victories. They'll be at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South, and it's all, and that's, um, this event is organised by LASNET. Um, to advertise again, um, next Saturday will be the Stop Adani, big day of action at 12 noon. Um, the politicians elected to represent us are trying to ignore the huge movement of Australians who want to stop Adani. If we want them um, to take notice, we have to spell it out for them. Join us for a big day of action to spell 
stop Adani with its giant human sign. And that's going to be at 200 to 590 Royal Parade in Carlton North at Prince's Park. Um, there'll be an art ex- exhibition, um, uh, Siam Silk Roads opening. Um, that'll be at 2 p.m. at the Library at the Dock, North Road, Wharf Road City, and it's organised by artists um, for Siam Seekers. Um, on Sunday, October the 18th, um, there'll be a forum, Unlocking the Truth, about Lock, um, Lockheed Martin. That'll be at 11 a.m. at the Arts Hall at Melbourne University, and it's organised by the UMSU Environmental Collective and Lockout Lockheed. There'll be uh, a rally for refugees, end offshore um, processing and monetary detention, bring them here, let them stay at 2pm at the State Library, and this is organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be uh, there'll, There's going to be a rally um, on Sunday the, the 15th, um, a Sunday, the fifteenth of October, um, on de- on celebrating and defending public housing. That'll be at one pm at the Debney Meadow Park, which is a short walk from the Flemington Station. On Saturday, on Saturday, on this, this Tuesday, um, there will be uh, a forum on Burma um, behind the Rohingya, uh, genocide of Rohingya, um, hosted by Socialist Alliance, um, happening on Tuesday, the tenth of um, October, um, at six thirty p.m. at the Resistance Centre, which is at level five four oh seven. Swanson Street, and it features a range of guest speakers who will be speaking about what um, what is actually happening there and how we can show our solidarity. Um, on Friday, on Saturday, November the fourth, there'll be a seminar on Northern Syria's feminist revolution, um, happening from ten a.m. to seven p.m. at the Victoria University City Campus, three hundred Flinders Street, City, um, organised by the Kurdish um, Democratic Community Centre. Kurdish Women's League and Australia's for Kurdistan. Um, for more information, see Australia's for Kurdistan on Facebook. Um, and in terms of other events that are happening, there is going to be uh, a, a Wednesday, October 18th rally, Defend and Extend Public Housing, and that's going to be at, I think, around 12pm 12, 12 at the Parliament House um, in Melbourne. Uh, and then on Sunday, um, October the 22nd, um, there is going to be another, um, the final kind of marriage quality um, rally, or in, before the yes event, there might be another one after the yes survey. Um, following that, and they'll be at 1 p.m. at the State Library on October the 22nd. On the okay, Sunday. on that note, uh, can we go to the interview? Because um, the person we're interviewing is at law and the line is uh, pretty dodgy. Yep. So we want to interview her before the line cuts off then we can continue with the activist calendar after that's all right yeah i think we've covered kind of, so okay, she's on um we have coral winter who is uh, a long-time activist in the latin american issues and she is online to talk about venezuela yep and she just to give a context she's just recently returned from a trip uh in caracas in venezuela um so we're going to be talking to caracas caracas hard to pronounce yeah um we're going to be talking to her about you know her trip there um good morning coral oh good morning jacob how are you yeah, i'm good um i guess um can you, maybe we can go start to be, give us a bit of a story because we've been reading some of your articles from green left weekly about your kind of trip to venezuela and kind of like you know what are the kind of the things you experience there and especially in the context of you know 
what would be considered a bit of a co- crisis in Venezuela, especially with the rise of the right um, and the recent Constitute um, Assembly, or that's what it was called, the elect, um, what, what happened there? Okay, there's a lot of questions there, Jacob. But first of all, <laughs> one at a time. Um, it was um, I went on a delegation, uh, international delegation organised by Venezuela Analysis, the website that um, prints uh, publishes a lot of information in English on what's happening in Venezuela from a progressive point of view. Um, there was twelve of us, um, eight Americans, um, three from um, Belize, and um, myself. Coral, do you want to start, uh, put the phone a little bit away from your mouth because there's a lot of extra noises coming through? Oh, okay. Sorry, thanks. Yeah, it's clearer. Yeah, so it was a delegation of 12 of us um, and we went on, uh, we saw um, uh, quite a few things in Caracas. Um, The first item that was very important was, um, very impressive, was one of the six buildings in the centre of the city that were built by um, Chavez and, and um, President Maduro uh, to house 1.7 million houses, they units wow. they built in the wow. last five years and given virtually free a very low interest rate to poor families um, who'd come from the countryside or people who were living on the hillsides. And um, they were shown around that building. And there were six of those. Um, and, and no other country, I should you know, emphasise, no other country in the world is um, building social housing mm. um, for low price for, for poor people to house. Um, Do they call we, it social housing, Coral? Because in Australia it has different connotations, um, you know, between public housing and social housing. Well, it's really public housing. Public housing, okay. Yeah. Just to they, clarify um, it, yeah. yeah. And they supply all these units Apartment, yeah, small apartments with a refrigerator and washing machine and stove so that wow. people don't have to buy them. There's 1.7 million of them. Amazing. Um, and then uh, and we went and saw some of the um, community councils also in Caracas in La Pastora. Then we went on a trip uh, for three days to Balavento where the African descendants from the slaves um, uh, mainly live. On the coast, and, and where they grow, they live by growing cacao, um, and chocolate. It's a delicious chocolate they make <laughs> um, from Venezuela. You know, it's crazy to think that um, in Switzerland you have Nest, Nestle's chocolates. Yes, yes. Don't have any cacao. They don't grow any of that. Mm, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. In Venezuela and other countries, it's crazy. You know this, but that's capitalism. Mm. And then, uh, and also uh, uh, a factory where they're making banana chips. So they were very productive and employed a lot of people and very successful. Um, and then we went to Lara, across um, to the west of um, Venezuela, and spent three or four days in the um, in um, Barquisimeto, where in, in the first place where we stayed, um, it's got a strange name, Kayatus. Well, I can't remember exactly, but there it was given to the MST, the Brazilian um, peasant group um, movement without those without land to come to Venezuela and um, occupy this land and grow food there. So there was a group of Brazilians teaching the Venezuelans um, to re- re-fertilize the land with um, organic material and then to start growing, um, they're growing corn and sugar. But that land had been owned by a rich landowner 
who had wasn't growing anything, and uh, you can tell from uh, we stayed at a uh, stables where there's um, just uh, w- w- it was built for ho- his horses, but that was really modified for you know um, group accommodation. And then we went to El Maizal, which is a um, beautiful one thousand hectares of land, also owned by a rich landowner who lived in Venezuela, who lived in Miami. Um, and that was taken over by the workers several years ago and now a productive farm. So um, it was very impressive, that aspect of to see the, the communes and the cooperatives and the state um, um, businesses that are functioning really well. Mm. Um, in, in relation to the, the propaganda we are getting in Australia, it's interesting that they, of course, you know, uh, build up the right-wing reaction and how there's a crisis and, and there's a shortage of food and essential goods and, and the rest of it. What sort of discussion did you confront in, in, in Venezuela about this sort of propaganda? Well, look, it's, to a certain extent, it's true. They are going undergoing an economic crisis. This is the point of um, where the, the, the battle lines are drawn with U.S. imperialism. They are trying to destroy the economy by um, increasing inflation like 2,000 times. Um, so there is a crisis of food because the, there's plenty of food there. I went through to a local market in Caracas, in, um, in, uh, oh, I've forgotten the solid now. But, um, and there's massive amounts of food, there's a ton of food, but nobody can afford it because of the massive um, inflation that's been happening caused by U.S. imperialism and with their agents in Colombia and um, Brazil. So in, in, every day the price of goods goes up. Um, I had used to get a little cafecito on the street. One day it was 400 bolivars and then the next day it was suddenly 500 bolivars. And, and what's the exchange rate? Example. Well, the official exchange rate is only 3,000 bolivars for one US dollar. It used to be five um, um, bolivars for one US dollar under Chavez. Mm. And, and now the official rate is... Um, 18 to tw- the the black market rate is 18 to 20,000 bolivars Oof. for one US dollar. But you can, uh, that's gone up, you know, um, 2,000 times that has increased from sort of to five bolivars up to 20,000 bolivars. So it's a massive increase in, mm. in the cost of goods. And it's because the Colombian and Brazilian governments are running, well, they've got um, an exchange, they've got, um, uh, what do you call them, exchange um, centres um, on the border with Colombia and Venezuela and also Brazil and Venezuela that run an alternative exchange rate at this high rate. And it's reflected in a web page that's published every day on the web called Dollar Today. And um, they just keep increasing the... Or decreasing, devaluing the value of the Bolivar. So that's what's... It's been really extremely difficult to control this, um, this this external sort of manipulation of the value of the Bolivar by the Maduro government, and that's caused this massive problem of of, of inflation, where the, the people who are in business or are selling goods look at dollar a day on the web page and then accordingly put up their price. One day I went to buy an empanada on the Saturday. It was 2,500 Bolivars. 
and on the Tuesday it was 2,800 bolivars. Wow. Well, that sort of daily increase of the um, devaluation of the bolivar, it's very, very difficult for ordinary people to, to buy food. Mm. Unpredictable. Yeah. Um, my next question is um, is about, you know, what are kind of like the um, – because you're on a delegation with Venezuela Analysis, do you get an opportunity to sort of meet up with the different sort of grassroots movements and or maybe other left-wing organisations and what is kind of like the general mood uh, amongst those organisations in terms of building um, building socialism in Venezuela? Well, we had a really interesting um – Interview and introduction to the uh, a group in um, Lara in Bacasimeto who took over the Brahma factory in um, 2013. Uh, it's a huge. Um, that's a huge company that makes um, manufactures all the beer um, for the whole of virtually. It's exported to Latin America, but also into Europe and um, United States. It's a huge conglomerate uh, covering about um, 100 hectares. Anyway, the owners decided that when um, um, Commandante Hugo Chavez died in 2013, in March, that that was the end of their business opportunities in Venezuela, that it was going to be a military coup and takeover. So they decided to sell up. But um, they just said... Uh, and But they left all the equipment and all the materials especially all, you know, tons and tons of yeast and um, barley in the, in the factory. So there was something strange going on. And they sacked the entire workforce. Oh, God. So um, what happened next is these workers who'd been there, some of them for 24 years, occupied the factory. Sounds good. And it took them two years um, to finally get um, a legal um, protection order from the government with the help of the local um, commune. Um, so that they could run a business, and that was they changed it into um, um, making uh, um, making feed, animal feed for the pigs and cows and um, goats and and sheep that, that that there are in that in in the state of Lara. So that was one um, amazing example. Um, interesting, WikiLeaks played a role in that because they did not know that the Brahma owners were going to sell it. Uh, who the who the buyer was? They made out it was Pepsi-Cola or someone else. But it was actually um, Gustavo Cisneros, who's a a billionaire in um, Venezuela who owns the other beer factory, Polar Factory, and also um, Venevision, which is a um, reactionary television station. And he would have had a monopoly of um, beer sales. So this is sort of the dirty Mm. um, things that are happening. But people, you know, the workers reacted and were able to um, take it over and make it a really successful, huge um, uh, uh, um, business, um, making, uh, doing, um, pro- providing water, providing cheap, uh, free water to the local communities, and also making animal feed and other, and beginning to use other products. Um, but I, I also talked to chavistas who come from Katia in the poor areas of Caracas. My friends who we stayed with there when um, we lived there for a year. And they're just adamant. They're going to give... They'll give their lives for this process. They know what has been happening and what's been... um, where they've come from. And they're not going back to that situation where they lived in poverty while, you know, um, 
10% of the population lived in absolute luxury, they're going to give their lives... They, they estimate that 70% of the population are um, chavistas and will fight for it, especially the young people. And in the uh, massive demonstrations that occurred just before the um, constituent elections, there were a huge number of young people because they know that they, under Chavismo, they will get an education, a free education, right up to university level. And they're not going back to having to sell, you know, um, silly little items in the street on a stall all day long in order to make a living. Mm. That's the alternative. Mm. So, I, you know, I, I'm quite positive. I mean, they are at a sort of a, a knife edge and they are um, in a really difficult situation. But... Um, I think with the new constituent assembly, that that will begin to change. So I'm very hopeful, but it, it is a very difficult situation, and people are um, some of the poorer families are quite are are hungry because they have um, can't afford the food, the prices of the food that the um, capitalist market is is um, charging. Uh, and another item I should mention that there's no cash. You you can't buy, you can't get notes, you can't get hold of paper money. Because it's been stolen by um, different banks, by the private banks. Twenty-five tons of um, Venezuelan paper money was found in Asuncion in Paraguay. And that's what they did, someone reminds me, in Soviet Union. They collapsed because they had no access. They couldn't get paper money. And because it was all bought up by um, big companies and hoarded and, and shipped out to other countries, to in other parts of Europe. But um, that's what they're trying to do. It, it's a big war. It's a war, and it's over the economy. I guess that's what um, Donald Trump meant when he said he was going. He would like to destroy Venezuela, Cuba, and um, North Korea. He put them all in the same category. But I guess that's that's uh, one of the um, strategies if you're smart enough to understand to implement. I guess. Hmm. Yeah. But capitalists certainly, or the ages of capital, certainly know how to do that. I, I guess another question I kind of want to have, um, this is more um, a question from, you already kind of talked about, you know, your interactions with um, the kind of grassroots movements. But what is sort of like, do you kind of, because this is what I've uh, heard from a lot of um, people who went on these solidarity trips to Venezuela, and one of the things um, that since Chavez got elected and then um, this sort of rise and left is basically this, whether, you know, what what is the level of kind of polarisation right now amongst, like, the general public? Like, you know, do you find that um, there's a lot of... The, do you find there are people on the streets who would be uh, in support of the right-wing opposition or um, or, are they, or is it as a given the majority of... And what is kind of, like, the general population's attitude towards Maduro? Well, I think a, probably a lot of people criticise... Nicolas Maduro for not probably getting a handle on the inflate the problem of inflation. I think also the middle class is sort of more disillusioned than the working class or um, you know poor families. But they're not a significant section of the working of the middle class aren't supporting the um, right wing and the opposition because they don't see them as a solution. But they're just sort of disillusioned. And um, there's been some terrible things happening. Um, one of my friends, um, her her sister's husband was kidnapped 
by um, the National Guard and they had to pay two million bolivars to release him. Another friend, um, her niece, was um, kidnapped by a section, by the police, we think it was the police, and had to pay 5,000 US dollars um, to get this young girl, she was only 17 years old, uh, released and they stole her car as well. So people are, anyone who has had a, a little bit of um, money are being targeted by a corrupt element within the National Guard and the police. So that means they're really disillusioned. Mm. And um, they are sort of trying to... They're leaving in droves. I've heard that about 10,000 um, professional people have left because the situation is dire because they don't see any change or any hope for them. But the, the working class realise it's very different amongst the working class and, and, and poor people who have always suffered enormously under the Fourth Republic. And um, they have seen a change in their education hopes, ability, um, prospects, a, a change in, um, uh, you know, their housing and living conditions. So they're prepared to really struggle uh, and fight um, mm. to make sure that they don't go back. Um, so it, it's, it's a, a different attitude, I think, depending on um, how your sort of living circumstances beforehand. There's a massive amount of corruption of within the Maduro government, but that's true of all the countries in Latin America. It's just that you hear about it in Venezuela. If you don't hear about it, it's not publicised. Mm. We're going to um, have to round up um, Coral. Sorry well, to, I, to interrupt that. Okay, can I just make one point? that mm-hmm. We really have to continue international solidarity with Venezuela when you realise that the U.S. imperialism and Trump are out to, determined to de, to destroy yep. this country because U.S. imperialism has lost a market of 23 million people. They're going to get that back no matter what. Yes. So we really have to counteract this um, this disinformation, war of disinformation, um, and, and get out the word that the Maduro government is not corrupt, is not... Um, he's not a dictator. They're... they're um, it's it's a democracy with a constituent assembly elected 514 uh, delegates uh, to make a new constitution in two years, and that'll be voted on. It, it is certainly not in a dictation in any terms whatsoever, and that we need to step up our international solidarity and realise that they are on the brink, and it's really, really important that they survive. It's it's a, a hope for all of us in the uh, in the West. If, if they go down, it'll be a disaster for yes. everybody. Yes. Thank you very much, Coral, um, okay. for getting up so early in the morning to give us the interview. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah. So we've um, come to the, the end the end of the um, program. Thank you for listening and hope you'll tune in again next Friday. Unfortunately, we've got to run because uh, the BZD is waiting at the door. Um, oh, for those we sort of have two <clears throat> minutes left before we have to go. Oh, yeah, well, with yep. that time, must be wrong then. <laughs> um, so um, we had Dick Nichols from um, Barcelona talking about the Catalan um, referendum and the disputes, have struggles are going on there. And, of course, recently just you had Coral Winter talking about her trip to Venezuela. Jacob, you want to say something? Um, and um, we also discussed, you know, all the kind of latest news and headlines. Um, guess uh, last kind of announcing Kane, um Make sure you, if you can, can come to the Stop Dani action. That's Katoa, a big national day of action. Um, and if you're listening from other 
states or other cities. Um, there's going to be national actions in Geelong, Adelaide, and Sydney. Um, I thought it was national, so other other states will have it too. That's so what if I just you're said, listening on the web. Please uh, look it up and you will find it easily enough. Stop Adani campaign. It will have all the details on the website. And if you've enjoyed the program today, please um, do think about contributing. We are happy if you want to contribute $3 a week on an ongoing basis so that in the end it contributes to the maintenance of alternative news for you. And thank you for listening and goodbye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.